I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 113 of Cybersecurity Interviews. This is the first in a multi-part series where we examine diversity, equity, and inclusion in cybersecurity, and we're speaking to Julian Waits. Julian is the General Manager of Cybersecurity at Devo Technology. He has over 30 years of experience in senior leadership roles at technology companies specializing in security, risk, and threat detection. He serves on several industry boards, including the International Consortium of Minority Cybersecurity Professionals and National Cybersecurity STEM Education to promote the development of the next generation of cybersecurity professionals. In this episode, we discuss missing travel, working more in COVID-19, recruiting from non-traditional places, diversity, equity, and inclusion, his start in music before technology, changing people's understanding of differences, removing unconscious biases, his mentors, why language matters, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Julian, thank you for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm doing fine, Doug. Thank you so much for having me. Well, great. And whereabouts are you uh, based out of? Are you out of Boston? Actually, I'm not based out of Boston, even though my LinkedIn profile yeah. says that for Devo. It's just because it's where our headquarters is. I'm based out of the Tampa, Florida area. And prior to COVID, I was just based in a, you know, a, a plane seat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling. I was, uh, I, I haven't seen a, I forgot what planes look like at this point, I think, in my career. I've, this is the longest I've not been on the road in a, in a long time. But how have you adjusted to more of this, uh, you know, distance working and remote workforce? It's been difficult for me because I'm a very relation, relationally oriented person. The, the strange thing is, is I've got a mix going now because I actually had the virus back in March. I uh, didn't know it until I lost uh, my sense of taste and smell because I was one of the mostly non, uh, you know, asymptomatic people. I just didn't, I didn't have the chest problems. I didn't have the fever. I had a headache and then. All of a sudden, I couldn't taste a glass of wine anymore, and that was a very serious problem for That's me. That's a problem. <laughs> uh, so, so I've actually been traveling now. Uh, I'll tell you, twenty-five to thirty percent of the time, especially recently with some large opportunities we've run. It's it, one that's required a lot more of my attention. Uh, but you know, like everybody else, I'm in usually a combination of Zoom, uh, Microsoft Teams. And uh, and every now and then some Google Meet every day, and I'm working more hours than I've ever worked before because it's just nonstop. Yeah, I found that too. Unfortunately, it's it's becomes more difficult to step away from that. You know, it was, it was easy to say when I was on a plane and unavailable, where now I think the expectation becomes people think, well, you're just at home working. I can I can reach you any time of the day. I'll hit you up on Slack or Zoom or whatever. Well, you you know what I'm doing now, Doug, and and, and, and I say doing. I just started this on Monday. I read a, uh, a book recently, and one of the things it dealt with was this very uh, thing that's going on, because this person, the author, also experienced it. And one of the things he's done, he's just, he set a time every day where finally the, the meetings are done, the official ones that were scheduled, he just goes, okay, I'm done. He gets up and walks away from his desk, 
and I'll still take the occasional phone call, but I make sure to make it clear about, hey, I'm spending some time with my wife right now and it's very important to me. Is this urgent or can it wait until tomorrow? And uh, and most of the stuff can wait until the next day. So that's the way I'm trying to deal with it at least. Yeah, it's it's really important to set boundaries in this in this era <laughs> because I do I find the same thing where I've had to block out you know portions of the morning on on a cadence of certain days where I decide okay these are going to be my deep deep work days where I'm going to turn off the slack turn off the distractions and whether it's it's writing something or just focused um, so I'm not moving from one little task to another and quite frankly getting burned out you know it's it's crazy you know traveling you probably experience it too it's you get tired from doing that and doing conferences. I find I'm, I'm more exhausted doing six Zoom sessions in a row than anything. No, else. I am too. The, the, the other thing is, is because you know I'm on tap to our sales force globally. Um, the the plane rides used to break up the monotony for me, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize that until it wasn't a normal thing for me to be on a plane anymore. You're right. I used to complain, oh, I got to take this eight-hour flight or whatever. And now I look back at it, and I got so much work done when nobody could get to me. Yep. I found it was funny when I was in, I was doing some work in China about a year ago. And uh, because of the time zone differences, I only was available to uh, people in the US for like two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon. The rest right. of the time, I got so much done without people, you know, constantly stepping into my, my virtual world or, <laughs> or my office in some way, because I was like, wow, this is this is what it feels like to work undistracted. So I've, I've tried to take some of those lessons and continue to build that. Um, into that, but so tell me a little bit about your current role and, and what you, what you're focused on in your, your current job. Sure. So, uh, so that, you know, what I do to, to, uh, as work every day, cause everything's got to have a purpose for me. So I work for, you know, Devo Technology Inc. We are a, uh, advanced, you know, operational data analytics platform. I am the general manager of cyber and now federal. So my job two years ago was to help the company get to the point where, you know, we could talk security, do security in a way that was meaningful for, for our, meaningful for our customers, that they got the outcomes that they were looking for from a, a data analytics platform. Two years later, we're basically a security company. And so my job is just to continue to spread that gospel uh, within the company, but most specifically in the industry and with, uh, you know, with our customers. I mean, really helping them to get to the point where they're they're happy about what they purchased, they're getting value from it, and they know that Devo is an ally and a partner to them to help move forward. Uh, additionally, what's important to me though is is the civic op- uh, op- things that I work in. Uh, you you mentioned earlier when we we talked before about the International Consortium of Minority Cybersecurity Professionals, ICMCP. That is absolutely my passion. Its, its role, its goal, its, its design is to help women and people of color enter the, the field of cybersecurity. As we all know, they are, in, in, especially in the, in the world of COVID-19 and work from home, more data, more problems, you know, more malware. Uh, there's just not enough people in the fight against the adversary. And so my goal is to try and find people from non-traditional recruiting vehicles to come in into this industry and help you know, again, solve these problems because it's a combination of humans, processes, and of course, the machines and technologies that we use to go after this. Yeah, you touched on a couple things I definitely kind of want to dig into, um, both in security leadership and around the issues of diversity and inclusion. You know, part of what I'm trying to do is make it more of a mission of talking about diversity and inclusion and mental health, you know, how it impacts the people that are involved in our industry. 
quite frankly, I'm also tired of trying to get people not to click on email links anymore and fix <laughs> SMB V1. I figure if I can, if I can, if I can fix the mental health and diversity and inclusion problem, I can probably do that easier than getting people to uh, to solve the 20 year old problems that we're all still dealing with on a daily basis with open RDP. Exactly right. Which is crazy, but I mean, it's it, it, so. How was a little bit about you know how did you enter the field? What was your toehold and journey to get to where you are today? So it's a, it's a funny story, right? When I started, uh, before I started my career, I was actually a jazz performance major at uh, Loyola in New Orleans. If you saw my camera on earlier when we first started, you said, in this case today, you know, the goal is to try and spend some time on the tenor sax later today. And uh, put in at least an hour after this regular day is over with. And as I tell people, hey, I'm sorry, really busy with something right now. Is it, is it urgent or I got to go to something else? Because it's one of the ways I keep my sanity. But, you know, uh, I learned fairly early on in college, I, you know, while I was very talented, I just did not have the patience to put in the time it takes to become a professional musician. And I desperately wanted to be a professional jazz musician, but it wasn't going to happen. And I had a knack for math and science. I was working for, at the time, Texaco as a computer operator. And one of my mentors at work, you know, said, because I was a security guard at the time, actually said, hey, you know, you seem like a really smart kid. You should consider going into IT. And I entered the IT department uh, as a computer operator, you know, doing stuff at night because I could still practice. And then I learned programming. First, you know, to really age myself, DCL, digital command language, because we had a lot of decks. And, uh, and that just turned into a complete passion for me. I then went into computer networking from computer networking, then went into application development, but most of the applications I worked on were around computer networking. And that ultimately turned into a career on the sales side of the equation and the business development side of the equation in the you know uh, mid to late 90s. And then in 1999, 2000, somebody turned me on to you know information security. And I just fell in love with something that was back then uh, not as big as a problem, but I knew it was going to come a much larger problem. The more we expanded our footprint on the internet, the faster machines became. And the fact that the internet was never really designed to be secure spelled a huge opportunity there. And so in the early 2000s, I worked for the first company uh, as a startup that I worked for called eSecurity. Now I don't know where it is. I think it's buried somewhere in Microfocus, but it was one of the first SIM vendors. And um, that's that really started my passion for it and then i decided to become a ceo do the startup thing um on my own so then i had my first startup which was called bravian technology it was in the itgrc space but still 100 percent wrapped around uh information security and of course at this point you know 2005 2006 all of a sudden information security was becoming cyber security meaning the term that was used same concept and then these 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 people, you know, called CISOs began to to uh, emerge, which is the best one of the best things that ever happened in the industry. And I've just been married to this market ever since for over twenty years now. Yeah, no, and it's it's funny. I have a very similar kind of entry into the marketplace. You know, when you when you start out in the nineties, there there really wasn't there wasn't a cybersecurity path. Heck, there wasn't even really a um, you know, an IT path that I think follows what a lot of us know today with with enterprise networking and things like that. It was very very focused Correct. on, you know, you probably saw it too, you know, Cobalt and big mainframe. And I'm like, I, I, that that's just not my thing. I mean, it was 
I, I just saw a bigger marketplace and what people were using with Windows computers and the internet. What I guess what were some of the early things that you saw that you you kind of had your emperor's had no clothes moments to focus more on maybe the IT systems and administration. Well, it's a, it's a strange story for me. I actually worked for a mainframe software company, BMC Software. Ultimately, where I ended up, where I tell people my career really started, and that was what opened my eyes to you know what was what was going to happen with the internet. Meaning, you know, at the time, most of the world's data was was stored somewhere. It was it was the biggest server in the world would be the mainframe and the mini computers in the environment. But more and more, because of speed and really distribution. People wanted to get smaller things kind of everywhere with data on them and management of those things became a problem. And, and what really emerged from it was, you know, at first hackers were doing stuff for fun, but all of a sudden, hey, these guys actually want real money to give me my data back or <laughs> yeah. we just got breached and we got to do this big disclosure. And before when everything was on the mainframe, it was, it was much easier to kind of put that virtual moat around the thing and protect it. But now that you have, because you have the emergence at that time of Oracle and Informix and, and all these other mid-range uh, database companies, where their real goal was, how do we take this data that's on the mainframe and distribute it in a fashion that everybody can get to it as easily and as quickly as possible? And the more we did that, the more the problem was going to get worse. And because uh, like you said, there wasn't a traditional approach to information security most of the people I knew from back then, and still most of the people I know today, because you know, going to school for a cybersecurity degree has only become a thing in the last five or six years, right. you kind of fell into information security. And that's what happened with me. I just one day kind of fell into this whole new thing and I went, oh my God, I didn't know this whole world existed out there. And then, you know, God forbid, but when when the dark web arose, that really got me going in terms of understanding the mindset of what these attackers were after and then nation state and the fact that, you know, all our wars now start in the cyberspace before we ever fire one bullet. Oh, definitely. I mean, you've, you've, I think we've definitely seen that progress in the last couple of years. It's, it's a path of least resistance. You know, you, you can get your intelligence sources, you can launch attack. You do a lot on the internet against, <laughs> against somebody yeah. else, you know, and, and when you, you can even manipulate an election. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. And it's, I think we're going to see more of that. And it, it carries out to this interesting point where people just, you know, we want to adopt this technology, um, but there's never this sense of, I can, but should I? And what are the risk reward kind of situations for doing that? And that's something that I've seen that's been ingrained since the 90s of, well, we just have to make it work. We'll figure out what's the, you know, what are the downsides later because it's going to make us more productive. I'm like, that's, and security is always one of those things that the, let's think about it later. Yeah, we'll bolt it on later. And it's like, it doesn't quite yeah. work that way. <laughs> right. Um, but well, as let's, let's, some organizations are getting, I shouldn't say some, many organizations are getting smarter about that, but business needs are definitely still leading the, the risk quotient of what people are willing to take on from uh, from a cyber perspective it's still about the dollar first do you think that greater com you know compliance mandates and, and regulations have forced organizations to be more sensitive to it do you think it's the public shaming you know, what it's, it's finally i think starting at that point where custom or um, companies are thinking more oh this is this will be bad if we get a data breach um but there's also regulatory stuff. Do you think there's a combination? I'm kind of curious what's your perspective, what drives organizations to think about it? I think it's a combination. It's, it's, it's you know, you, you hate to overuse um, Target, but you have to use Target. It, it was the first time 
I mean, I, I, I love telling people the Target story, right? The, at the time, the CEO of Target had basically rose through the ranks for years. Started at a fairly low position, and 20 years later, here he is running the company. You know, the, the, the mythical, you know, started in the mailroom and now, you know, senior executive. And he and his entire management team and a couple of board members were decimated by that breach. They lost their jobs, and in some cases, people were personally sued. It changed everything, especially as it relates to public companies and how they manage other people's data, especially, you know, personal uh, private data. So that was the start of it. And then as you had major breaches in the healthcare space, Anthem and others, uh, this concept of risk to the business, risk to the board members, risk to the senior executives began to really hold true. Um, and so I think that's where it started. And then the fact that the breaches just kept getting larger and larger and seemingly, you know, when you looked at the aftermath of why it occurred, it was over the silly, stupid stuff, you know, cyber hygiene that you think everybody's doing. Uh, what do you mean you guys hadn't rebooted your machines in two years? You were applying patches, but you never rebooted them. Uh, then you never really applied the patches. You just, you just installed the patch. And then you find out there's a major breach of a, you know, a credit card, not credit card, but a credit granting service or a scoring service that that was the nature of core, you know, root cause of why they had a major breach. And so those things have all com combined together to, uh, you know, that that, oh, you know, what moment in terms of we can't get caught that way. And it's caused, the, you know, boards and executives to think. You know, they still don't accept CISOs as, as their equal in most cases, but the role and the concept has become much more important. And then the CISOs that are the, the most forward thinking and the smartest ones know very quickly to relate that to risk to the business rather than security as a as a tool or as a set of technologies, because those are the ones that lose. It's really about how can these technologies and all these great people we have align with what we're really trying to accomplish with the business so we can protect our, ourselves against the stuff that matters most to how we get things done for our customers or for for whoever our constituents is. If it's the military, you know, how do we best protect our personnel in our country? Uh, but those risks are really what I think what kills everybody and that orientation is changing rapidly. Even recently, you know, you look at the situation with the former CISO of Uber, who's who I consider a friend, um, and, you know, it's maybe the first time that you have someone who's at that role who's actually prosecuted for something that relates to both compliance and disclosure, right? Well, you, you mentioned something earlier in our conversation too about, you know, kind of the outcomes that you're, it seems one of the ways that you framed some discussions and, and that I'm picking up, you know, with the, you know, business executives talk about outcomes, not just the technology that what's the impact and outcome, um, how how did you how did you find that voice you know where did you start relating to that that i related to it because it, well here's why i've got a lot of friends who are CISOs, uh many friends who are executives and and most CISOs, you know start off with a very strong technology acumen and over time you know as as they have to deal with politics and it and cio and and then most specifically the business owners they very quickly have to learn the language of, of the business, the language of really what makes things flow. And many of them had failed security programs, right? Where they spent a lot of money on technology. 
Sometimes that technology was companies that I worked at in the past, uh, but because they didn't have a really good plan in place, one that was based on how do we use these things to reduce risk, and they didn't understand the outcomes that they were really going for, rather than just buying technology that they thought would solve a big part of the problem, they failed at their jobs. The good ones learned from that, and the next time around did something better. But you know, for me, I won't be involved in a transaction with a customer now unless they can clearly articulate to me what it is they're trying to achieve with my uh, with the technology that I'm selling them and, and where they wanna go with it in the future. Meaning it has to be about a path that we're building together. It can't just be a one-time thing, but those outcomes are important because otherwise it's just wasted money, wasted time, and, and quite frankly, waste, wasted cycles in your life. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's funny, I almost, uh... You know, I almost feel like with when I deal with some of my customers that come in with grand ideas, which I support their vision, but I have to say, you know, what you're asking me to do is hand over keys to this very expensive, high-performance Ferrari, but you're going to drive it off the lot, get maybe a mile down the road and crash it into a tree. Why don't we we start with something where you kind of get comfortable with driving first before you start taking this machine out, which can do it because it's, it then it becomes, I think this issue with that we have in the industry where people are very uh, anti-vendor and very anti-product. And it's, it kind of cuts both ways. There's kind of some shared responsibility I'm seeing in that where people say, I want this. And it's like, well, what are you trying to do? Let's start with that. And how do we get more organizations to have that conversation saying, I'm at point B, I'm at point A, I want to go to point B. Don't come with me with a prescription. Tell me what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, this, it's it's difficult. I uh, I deal with it every day. Because usually if you're dealing with lower level technical people, it's show me this, show me that. Here's a use case, show me this. And then I go, okay, I can show you most of that. But why am I showing you this? And in many cases, because they don't want to expose potentially breaches or problems they've had in security programs before, which I completely get. Uh, But in a lot of cases, it's, hey, you vendor, I know you're just here trying to sell me something. Pull out your wares and show me this so I can compare it to what I saw from these other three vendors. And then when you dig deeper, Doug, what you usually find out is the, and, and, and it's tough because people don't like hearing it. And you, don't, you certainly don't want to get excused from the process because people consider you arrogant. But what you find out is they haven't thought through what the real outcome is that they want. But again, they're thinking through, can I prove, does, does this product or this widget have a capability? But the capability is an attribute of a desired outcome or an des- outcome that's needed for the business. And those are the discussions I strive to have, but it's, it's to your point, it's very difficult to get there. Yeah, I, I think people continue to look for that magic bullet in security, and it's it's a program. It doesn't exist. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's, it's a journey. It, you know, going back to your journey, I mean, you know, when you, when you started, and I, I kind of want to get into the diversity and inclusion thing because it's, I found, you know, sure. in, in my career, you know, even being you know, a cis white middle-class male lives in Boulder, Colorado. I couldn't be more generic looking than possible, but really my background was built by people of different walks of life, uh, different colors and ethnicities that supported me in my IT journey in the nineties that really set me up for future success. And I've been I'm very fortunate to, to be surrounded with that. Um, but I can definitely say, you know, going into the industry and I've seen it is there's more people that look like me than that are diverse, you know, and, and it's an unfortunate thing because I feel like we continue to talk about the saying that we just don't have enough skill. We don't have enough people. We don't, I'm like, 
or we're just not making it a welcome enough industry or training people from all walks of life to come in. So when you started, did you see similar things? That were you the only person of color within a, a No, the, 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 so if we go back to ICMCP, yeah. One of the reasons we founded it, and, uh, and I'll say his name, his name is Devin Bryant. He's now the CISO of MUFG. Um, Devin's a good friend and a, and a mentee. And we were having a discussion one day and he knows I have a broad network. I think I'm like in the top 3% of connections with people on LinkedIn. He came in one day and he says, hey, Julian, I wanna use your network and I need you to write a check. I wanna start an organization that's designed to help women and people of color coming into this industry, because quite frankly, most of the meetings I set in, there's nobody in the room who represents any of those categories other than myself. And the same was true for me, you know, in the, in the venture capital startup world, uh, especially when I was acting in the role of CEO, I was definitely an anomaly. And well, in general, as an executive in, in, a, in a high tech company, I'm an anomaly. And so, like everything, right? I come from very meager background. My father was a Baptist pastor. You know, we we were we were on definitely the lower end of the spectrum of of a middle class family, and so it became important to me to try and make a change there. But it, it also required changes in myself. And I'll give you a perfect example. I was the CEO of one company. I had about you know 500 employees, maybe 50 million ARR a year, and one of my closest friends uh, in the company. Uh, calling my, uh, you know, uh, Friday night, man, what am I doing wrong? What can I do better? Uh, you know, beverage friend comes to me one day and, and he's, you know, as white as they come, he's from North Carolina. He's got a really strong Southern drawl. And he says, you know, Julian, you talk black and you talk diverse, but you buy white. And I got so upset with him, Doug. I don't want to punch him in the face. I was like, what? I can't believe he said that to me. And, but his point was, look, Look at how we're doing recruiting at this company. You're looking at all the best schools. You're looking at all this. He says, you're not doing anything that demonstrates to me that you're looking for a diverse talent pool. And that was a Friday night because that's when we usually got together. That Saturday, the Saturday morning, I was upset. Saturday afternoon, I was in tears. Friday, I said, hey, I mean, Sunday, I called him and said, hey, can we get together again tonight? Uh, if, you know, if your wife will let you out. And he's, he's like, sure. So we got together. I was like, man, I thought really hard what you said over the weekend, and and I've come out with a, a preliminary plan. And I know this is not your area, but I'd like to walk it by you, get your your concepts on it. He loved it all. And then I got with my VP of HR that following Monday, and I said, look, things need to change. And so we never quite reached our goals for what we were doing for diversity and inclusion because it was very important to me that it wasn't just race based. Meaning, you know, we need more black employees. I mean, it may sound strange coming from a black guy, but that was what was important to me is diversity of thought. Uh, even if you looked at like, you know, even in our customer support department where people needed very minimal skills, you know, answer a phone, listen to what somebody's saying, follow these steps and processes to walk them through the first steps of what may be wrong because I was running an AV company, antivirus company at the time. Uh, even there, we were looking for, we would only hire college graduates that had a, you know, it didn't matter what the undergraduate degree, but they had to have this grade point average before we'd even consider them. And I changed all of that. I was like, you know what? That's not really fair. You don't have to be a college graduate. Hell, I'm not one. <laughs> so so we, we changed that. And the, the, what I will tell you is, is our customers were happier because of it. And the morale in the company was better. We did have some issues, you know, being in the deep South uh, here in Florida, 
Uh, I, I remember I had an issue once with uh, <laughs> with an employee who, who saw me every day, but I guess never realized I was the CEO. And I'm coming to walk to a door and he literally slammed the door in my face. And, uh, and I walked in and I said, hi, I'm Julian. And he looked at me in shock. He says, Julian Waits? He said, yeah. He says, well, look, I didn't know who you were and you looked really suspect to me. I said, well, what was it about this suit that I'm wearing that made me look suspect, made you suspect me? Because I, I was just coming from a customer briefing, actually. And, uh, and his manager came to me and said, hey, you know what? Because my office was actually situated on the floor with our support people. It was important to me to know what was kind of the pulse of the customer. And they said, well, Julian, look, we're going to go ahead and let this guy go. And I said, no, that's the last thing I want you to do. I want you to put this cubicle right next to my office. And I want to make sure that at least every two weeks or so, I get to spend some time with him. I said, because I don't think this, is, this issue is purely racism. I think it's just ignorance. And what I want to do is help him understand that people look like me, <laughs> who look like me, aren't the enemy. And, uh, and that we all need to learn to get along. And he wound up being a very productive employee for the company. So uh, it's just important to pay it forward. So, you know, at ICMCP, every year, I personally sponsor uh, scholarships, but I will tell you, large organizations, and I'll say some of them because we're doing a podcast. So, you know, uh, Rapid7, Tenable, uh, many people, uh, Cisco, Palo Alto Networks, uh, every year they, they donate money. Uh, Roland Cloutier, who's now the CISO for TikTok, uh, he, he, you know, is very involved in what we do and is a strong sponsor of our organization because they understand, just like you do, Doug, that the, the world is a better place if we can be more diverse and in an industry where we'll never be able to hire enough people to deal with this problem. Uh, why not start there? One of the things that I, I've noticed is also too with, with diversity is it's, you know, you, you get those, you get many sides of a problem solving kind of rubric, right? Like you get other people thinking about things in ways that you might become myopic about. Have you found that? And I'm kind of a, a leading question of softball a little bit, but I mean, have where, where have you seen diversity really kind of help with solving these challenges um, when you're dealing with maybe a customer problem or a client problem, we said, God, thank God somebody else was here with this other kind of point of view. No, it's a, it's, it's a very, it's a very good question. And, and so the answer to that is not as obvious as you would think, Oh, it's great. Cause I had this woman in the room and she could think of this or this guy in the room. It is the multiplicity of what makes us all diverse. Uh, you know, millennial versus, you know, some guy in his fifties like me, uh, young black kid from, uh, you know, lower income, versus uh, a white person who might come from a higher income. They all get in a room and they come from different paths. And the, what makes it all click is those different paths combined with who they become as, a, as an individual. So, you know, I can think of uh, multiple occasions when I've had really tough problems to solve. And, uh, and I'm really unorthodox, right? If I, if I got an employee somewhere in the organization, uh, of course, when I was a CEO, everybody kind of reported to me, but, it, but even here at Devo now, we have some big problems. I'll find that there was a, you know, uh, a young woman that I met in our Spanish office who I had a conversation with this about, you know, in the lunchroom one day. And I'll call her and go, hey, we're working with this problem. You and I had this discussion. I don't know if you remember six months ago. I was wondering if you could join this meeting with us tomorrow. <laughs> and they freak out when it happens. And, then, and everybody always questions it. And then they go, man, we're so glad you invited her to the meeting. She was very helpful. We didn't think about it from that perspective. Because, you know, the, the biggest problem in our industry, I don't think people 
you know, like you said, you, you consider yourself a generic white guy, but you but you you considered all the things that helped you to get here and how people who maybe didn't look like you or came from the same background you helped you to do it. It's because, you know, you've learned in, in many ways to get rid of that unconscious bias, because to me, that's the largest enemy. We don't know what we don't know. And we think everybody thinks the same way we do without understanding that there can be different paths to doing the same thing. And, uh, and so what I strive to do when I bring in these diverse concepts and ideals is really is, is trying to kill that unconscious bias because that's the thing that hurts innovation more than anything else in my opinion. Yeah, it's weird. You know, one, of the, one of the things that I ask staff of all levels when I'm working with them on solving a problem, I'll say, okay, what, what am I missing? You know, I always take it back to me. Right. I'm, I'm, I have a blind side. I know I have my own biases and I want to think outside of them. Um, you know, what are some of the tools that you use to get people to kind of think around some of these biases and their own biases and think about things more constructively? Well, some is, I, I tell you, there's two, two avenues that I've employed successfully. So like you, I, I actually openly say in the room, look, I wouldn't be in the room with all of you if I could figure this out. So I'm certainly not the smartest person that just whatever this problem is that we have to solve. And then what I have to fight to do, even within myself, is to make sure that everybody gets a voice. Even if we think the voice is not as knowledgeable or, you know, because a lot of times, especially people who come from uh, backgrounds where they're not the dominant, you know, makeup of people that are in the room, well, whether it's male, uh, whatever it is, right, or white males, whatever you want to say, is to make sure that those people get to have a voice and then create a culture in an organization where others are open to it. Because what I tell you is if there's not education, really starting from the top about this, then it just remains a problem and it festers and the culture can never evolve. Because you know it, it doesn't, it's not about black and white. It's we're all kind of this way. We're creatures of habit and we gravitate to things that are more like us and think like us. So you have to educate people. And so that's that's been a big component of what I do. Yeah, part of it. And I encourage others to do. Yeah, and I've even found it. You know, it's uh, I'm, I'm obviously altruistic, and I and I'm also capitalistic at the same time. I'm a business person, so I'm always looking at things in a in a or I try to approach things in a win-win scenario. I, I don't like zero-sum games where, oh, geez, if I do a diversity program, you know, who's going to lose? It's like, well, no, how do we all win in something like this? And I I had an instance. You know, this was several years ago where I had somebody. She was working for me. She was kind of coming up through the ranks. Was you know, coming to a manager level position and she's still doing really well in the industry. Um, but was probably only a good junior analyst. And I said, let's bring her to this, the big, the big account meeting with this big client I had just landed. And one of the other directors was like, no, I don't understand why, why would she be coming here? I'm like, just, just wait. And when we got in the room, it became more apparent one, because across from us, the, customer was a woman of color everybody else sitting around her at her organization were people of color and different diverse background and i said the last thing i want to do is like three white guys in suits to walk into this room and kind of tell them how it is because i also i'm worried again about my own biases and perspective and this individual who i brought up and she was able i love to, that by the way yeah I she was that. able to relate to the customer it it strengthened the customer relationship even where the customer said in point blank said within the meeting and i'm glad that you brought 
you know, uh, a female into this because I feel like I'm alone at times. I'm glad that I have somebody I can relate to and they became great points of contact. And that relationship bloomed really well and it became a fun relationship. Like we would go out and have barbecue and it was just, it became a really stronger relationship because I brought that diversity to the table. And I I felt that, okay, look, nobody lost in this situation. We all won. Have you had similar situations, you know, where you can say, look, this is, this is a, this is a winning scenario for everybody. No, you're right. It's, it's, it's so important. Like, um, we recently, I say recently a year ago, we had our West coast summit for ICMCP and, uh, it was sponsored by our major vendor in, uh, in the Bay area. Uh, the guy who runs the Bay area, uh, uh, you know, chapter said, Hey, Julian, I'd like you to be here, be in the room with us. And, and I went and it was great. And it was, it was young, one young, uh, black gentleman in the room. And he says, hey, Mr. Waits, you know, the problem is, is here in the Bay Area, there's not really this coordinated group of, of African-Americans that I can really reach out to, you know, and I'm looking for a mentor. And I said, look, I want you to look around the room real quick. And he looks around the room and I said, I can point out at least five white guys and three white women who live in this area who would love to be your mentor. I said, the first fault in this is, is stop looking for somebody who's just like you. I said, because if you know my history, I'm from New Orleans. New Orleans, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, uh, very black and white. Um, strange culture, though, that everybody kind of got along. I said, all of my initial mentors, all of the people who encouraged me in technology were all white people. I said, the best manager I ever had was a white woman while I worked for Texaco because she pushed me harder than anyone else with Hey, Julian, don't let anybody tell you you can't do this because you don't have a degree. Uh, you're, you're doing C programming, and many of us are struggling to, to understand that because they primarily uh, wrote in Fortran uh, at the time because, you know, we were doing a lot of applications for, for petroleum engineers. And they, but if she hadn't said that to me, this white woman, uh, I would have never thought, boy, this is something that Julian can do. And I know it's a little off topic from what we were talking about, but I get carried away when I think about it. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's, 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 you know, when it comes to that mentorship and I, and I, I struggle with that too, you know, even in, in my career where it was, you know, the same thing where I've always looked for somebody that was either a senior to me that had some kind of look or feel. And once I kind of broke down those biases, I found it in other people that were maybe lateral or different or then even reflecting on early people that again, were, were Indian Chinese. I'm like, wow, I've really, I've done better with that diverse mentorship than looking for another white guy, you know, uh, because I think at times I was just looking to feed my own echo chamber. Well, but here's the funny thing with me. Um, <laughs> if you look at my, because I, I do mentor a lot of people, uh, and, but if you look at, if you split it up by half and half, half the people I mentor are white. Now, uh, a, a significant portion of them are white women, uh, younger uh, white females. But, you know, they, there's now two young white guys that work at Devo that started off as mentees of mine. And so it's, uh, it's important to me to pass it around, but specifically in the black community, right? Especially because I come from a poor black family. Uh, you know, th- thank God I've been able to achieve a few things in my career. And so it's important to me to be out in front of people because one of the things my father used to say to me all the time, and he, for him, it was a discussion about faith and God. You know, that one of the definitions is, is you know, faith is, uh, paraphrasing, hey, it's being able to see yourself doing something that hasn't become a reality yet. But unless you can see it, you can't be it. 
And so I've never forgotten that lesson from dad. And so it's important to me to be in and around these people so they can understand what they can achieve. Uh, and because and the, other, the other examples they get, at least in the communities that I come from, is for somebody slinging drugs on the street who gets a nice car and maybe a nice house, but you know, they don't live too long, generally. Uh, and, and, and again, when you look at cybersecurity, there's so many different things you can do in cybersecurity, so many different places you can start and grow a, a very highly, you know, valuable career to yourself and to the community, uh, that pays well, uh, you know, starting almost from nothing. And, uh, that's why it's so important to me to get more people doing this. Yeah, and I think you know we we've kind of now we define that there is this problem. You know, we we definitely need more people. We have this lack of diversity. You know, if 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 we were going to moonshot this and try to figure out you know, what are some of the the macro issues that we really have to address to do it at scale, uh, because. I can't see you and I just mentoring. We can only mentor so many people at a given time and affect so much. No, change. that's right. So what what are the what are the multipliers? Where's the eighty twenty rule where we we find these things that you know add fuel to the fire well, to to the, add this level of solving this problem? I say look for organizations. You know, I encourage people to look at ICMCP. I see ICMCP.org. Uh, look at you know women in technology. Look at girls that code. Uh, there's so many organizations that you as an individual can identify with that are carrying on the fight that, to your point, Doug, that I can't carry on personally. There's a lot of people that I have to be thankful to every day at ICMCP that take either the dollars or the marketing thing I did and, and they use it in a way to, again, spread that gospel and help more people understand get out of the ignorance of what they can't do and understand what they, what the potential is of what they could be doing. Uh, because it, it's, it starts there. I mean, but it starts in our hearts. But then find some organizations that are aligned with, the, the because a lot of people have certain things about diversity that they want to they wanna do it. Like, for instance, I spoke uh, recently on a Zoom conference with an organization that's 100% focused on people in the LGBTQ community. And, uh, and, and it was a great conversation. I, you know, as I told them when we first started, hey, I'm gonna be a little ignorant about things. Don't consider me a bigot, consider the ignorance and accept it for what it is and educate me because you won't offend me. But let's talk about this. And it, it, you know, it was scheduled to go for an hour, it went an hour and a half. I did learn a tremendous amount about the things that they feel and that, that, that they consider important mistakes that I've made in the past in my career when dealing with people uh, from that community. And, uh, and, you know, it was just a great discussion for me to help others and myself understand what things I could do better to make people like that feel comfortable in environments with me. Now, one of the things too I see is more organizations having uh, diversity and inclusion uh, groups. Um, you know, I, I'm very fortunate where I'm at Splunk. We have one for LBGTQ. We have diversity. We have Black Voices. We have a lot of different kind of. Diversity. That's good. My my only fear, and I'm I'm still relatively new to the organization, so I don't think they're doing it here. But you know, when I've seen some organizations. Um, talk about it but it's also what's the intent you know how how much are they really driving it and not giving lip service um you know what are some practical things maybe organizations can ensure that they're actually doing well, i've seen both sides of it yeah right <laughs> i've seen both sides of it where where within icmcp you know it's a big deal to us to do corporate outreach because a big component of what we try and do 
is, uh, and you know, we have two major constituents, as I tell you. We have the, you know, I'm gonna call them kids coming out of college, but a good 30 to 35% of what we also deal with is transitioning adults. Uh, like one, one of the ladies I, I, I mentor, you know, in her mid fifties moved from being a nurse to a security analyst, <laughs> sock analyst. Yeah, you, met, you mentioned and, music. Uh, one, one of my best pen yeah. testers had a background in music, second career, you know? <laughs> She got it. And so, so we, so we focus on those two areas. And uh, when we engage with an organization, the first thing we try and do is figure out, is it, is this a figurehead position where they just want to write us a check? And it's not that we're going to turn down the check, by the way, but when they want to write us a check, because it, they, it's a, it's a check mark for them to say, Hey, look, we're doing stuff by diversity, or is it really driven from the top down? Because the companies that I've seen where it really works, the corporations, especially the larger ones, it really starts with the CEO uh, or the CEO gets on the bandwagon and it, it becomes something that's driven through the organization. Because even in organizations like yours, where you might have a lot of different groups, the groups might have some impact, but the greatest impact comes from education from top down. And, uh, and so that's how we kind of filter through them. Because what we do at ICMCP is we don't want to just, again, we, we're trying to also provide a, a path for these people to get internships and potentially even jobs. Because our whole mission is, is we want to increase that pipeline of people coming into cyber. And so on one side, yeah, we, because we, we, you know, unlike a lot of organizations where there's a lot of education that's provided, what we provide is money to get the education, meaning scholarships is, is, is number one. We provide mentorship and scholarships and those scholarships then once they get a certain set of skills, we're not really competing our mission if we're not also helping them get the jobs because we know there's so many jobs that are available. And, uh, and so far we've been mostly successful with that. We, we can get better. Uh, I'm, I'm actually meeting with our president next week. His name's Larry Whiteside. And, and so we can talk about ways to, to get better for, before our next board meeting. Uh, but it's, it's important to us. And so the organizations that we partner with the most are not just the ones who write us checks, but they're also ones who show interest and, and really, like what I had to do when I was the CEO of Vetrack, really differentiating how they're going to go about the pipeline of getting people who come into the program or into their companies, actually. Like I said, it's that that outcome. And and finally, you know, kind of looking at this, you know, for for me, I'm I'm always trying to learn more. You know, what what are things that maybe from I mean, we we barely know each other, but I'm I'm sure you can imagine. You know, there, there's somebody like me that's come up through technology industry that. It might have inherent biases or might do things I'm not even aware of that, you know, educate me on what I could be doing different. Are, are there things you know, we, for example, uh, you know, there's, there's things around language. Like we've been very careful within my working group at work to say not use white, look, white list or blacklist because it does build some inherent biases that we don't, you know, we just, we, we took for granted. We didn't think it was bad and don't know the long-term impacts. Are there some other things that I could be doing better that could make it, you know, a, a, a more level playing field? Well, like you've already started it with what we're doing right now. Uh, and I shouldn't say start. I'm sure you've done other things, but I can tell you, right, this is extremely helpful. Um, I think just reading more on the topic, understanding more about it, and mostly just engaging with, with different people. Like, like I said, you know, I talked to this one woman in our Spanish office about a given type, it was specifically about a DevOps topic and you know, implementing in the cloud and yada, yada, yada. And she, she was fairly new to that group and had a lot of experience. She was, I think she was a little shocked that some executive stopped to talk to her about what she does. <laughs> 
And then six months later, the executive calls it back and says, hey, you remember when we were talking about this whole thing? We got a problem. And I would like to include you in this call if you're okay with it. And, and so it's, it's really also just engaging. And, uh, and, and you, you, you think it's weird or people will find it weird, but my experience thus far has been people find it very rewarding. I've only had very few situations where it really went in a negative direction. And, uh, and I'll talk about that a little bit because it's important to learn from it. So, so specifically in the LGBT community, to your point, there's certain language that, that we can use not knowing that it's offensive, like, you know, five, six years ago, whitelist, blacklist, who thought about that? Uh, in the world that we're living in today, <laughs> uh, words matter. How you say it, what you're saying, even if your intent is different, the fact that you even use it can be, uh, and I'm going to use the term misconstrued, but it can be offensive to people because God knows I'm not trying to be offensive to anybody. And so uh, so I've, I've had a, a, a few instances with the community there where I would use certain vocabulary and later I'd get a call and somebody would say, Hey, you know, that was, that was offensive. And I go, well, all right, don't get mad at me. Help me understand why it was offensive because it's important to me, especially being a guy in his mid fifties where we just didn't consider stuff like this a while ago. Help me understand how I evolved my thinking on this. So not only, I don't want to just say the right thing. I want to embody what that thing is. And, uh, and, 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 and of course I said it was negative. It turned into a positive each case. We were always able to talk and make things work. The problem is when people stop talking, <laughs> you know, then it, then it becomes, as I call it, a religious problem where, you know, it's, it's my way or the highway on either side and nobody wins with that. It's, but it's the communication. So just talking to people, man, and, and, and opening yourself up just like you did on this podcast. I mean, I'm very impressed by this. I'm glad I did this today. Usually I don't like doing these things. I'm very happy that I did this today. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to have you. I, like it's, it's, again, it's a topic I really want to dig into and understand. I feel it's, again, it's, it's, it's the, I wouldn't say obvious, but it's, it's, it could be a kind of an obvious solution to a problem that we've been saying, you know, again, talent shortage is just, and my big thing is that what I love about Cyber Security is the diversity around the background. So many people that come from different things or, you know, yep. I'm, just even on my teams, I've managed teams of, you know, people doing vulnerability systems, pen tests, incident response, uh, security programs and all different. But like just even within the, the walks, you know, the different walks and paths we can take in cyber, like having that diversity and talking about things is cool to dissect it from different point of views and go, oh, wow, I never thought of it that way. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's no, just you're right. fun things. Um, and I think I also got fortunate too. you know, my, my parents were very, there were good communications, uh, authors They wrote several books on it and they taught it at the collegiate level. One of the things my father taught was, uh, uh, gender communications. And a lot of people were like, well, we, you're, you know, are you going to mansplain how people are? It's like, no, he's like men and women communicate differently. And once you understand it and appreciate it, then you can reframe your point of view and maybe be a better communicator. And I know people took his class. It was, it was incredibly eye opening because they're like, I only saw the word. No, but now like, evolve that to, yeah. to the gender issue. Yeah. And I shouldn't use the word issue to the, to the gender. Uh, well, situation is the right word here. Uh, I, that's exactly what I went through. There were, there were terms I was using on a call where I thought I was being enlightening. And, and inadvertently, I was offending some people because I hadn't gone through uh, this type of training that your father performed, right? I wasn't aware of it. I was ignorant. But you're so right about that. It's, 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 and that's why I said it's the communication and it's the education. 
yeah, we have to communicate and there's definitely, you know, patience and empathy with people are going to go a long way. And hopefully, you know, through the COVID thing, we're, we're all learning a little bit of that, you know, as we, we learn that, look, there's new forms, new ways that we're dealing with people. Um, yeah, I miss the face to face. I used to be able to social engineer things. Now it's, I have to change my communication styles and methodologies. Uh, you know, you have to adapt and overcome. And part of that is, uh, it's been the, it's been the hardest know. thing for me to deal with in the, <laughs> in the, in COVID-19 era is I'm used to sitting down at a table or in a restaurant, looking somebody face to face and, Hey, let's talk about this. And now it's, you have to learn how to do that in a way that's, that's equally effective, hopefully getting the connection, you know, through, through, you know, digital means. Yeah. What one final actually question I thought about, um, and, and this is something that I've been toying with. I'm wondering your perspective about kind of the blind interview process, where people submit resumes that maybe have like a, a, a unique number but no names, um, so you you can't have that bias of who they are, and you really have to look at what they have on paper, and then maybe go through some technical exams to show output, and then before they even get to an interview. But you you kind of remove some of that early bias. Uh, because there's been so many studies that say, you know, when people get hired based on names and, you know, something's more, you know, Indian sounding, black sounding or white sounding, or if it's a female, you know, there, there's bias that goes into that. What, what, are, what are your thoughts on that as a hiring practice? I would tell you, I would tell you, yes, but it's name and also, uh, you know, not so much education background, but certainly school names. So I know someone who did a program like this and they were really happy about it when they started. There's a corporation. Uh, where their chief diversity officer shared this information with me. They they did the the nameless resume thing. But then what what they saw was is the bias moved from, well, I shouldn't say move, the perceived bias moved from the names to, well, what type of school did they go to? Is this an Ivy League school? Is it a state school? You know, hell, they only have an education that's at a, you know, uh, whatever level. And so they also had to find a way to take the the skill sets that these people had, and it's harder when it's when it's people just coming out of college, right? But they had to find a way to convert the college education into a set of skill sets, and they still would state whether someone had a college degree or not. Uh, but but like me, made a lot of positions th- that didn't require college degrees to get them. Uh, so I, I would tell you, you also have to find a way to try and anonymize the educational background, because again, if it's if it's not going to be the name and uh, the next thing you look at is well uh especially if you went to a certain type of school ivy league school well did this person get as high a level quality education as i did are they really qualified based on that basis so that also becomes a a, a form of bias that you got to find a way to take out of the equation yeah no that's that's very good advice well julian i, I thank you so much for your time today where can people find you uh online so obviously, again, the general manager of cybersecurity for Devo. So obviously, julian.waitsatdevo.com. Or uh, as I stated, my passion is is working with people, helping new people to come into cybersecurity. As in that role, I am the chairman of the International Consortium of Minority Cybersecurity Professionals, icmcp.org. And you can reach me through that vehicle as well. Awesome. I'll be sure to put that all in the show notes. And thank you again so much for uh, taking the time today and stay safe out there. You do the same, Doug, and hopefully we'll talk again. Yeah, I hopefully in person someday. Uh, following your show. All right, I'm I appreciate follow it. Your show. All right, man. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. 
please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.